Today is Wednesday, March the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. A time-honored procedure to fix a spacecraft problem. NASA restored operation of a spacecraft. Have you ever suffered the frustration when a device doesn't work properly? When faced with a potentially mission-ending problem with NASA's 15-year-old interstellar boundary explorer, that's the IBEX spacecraft, engineers performed a time-honored procedure to fix it. They turn it off and turn it back on again. Success! IBEX is now fully operational again. Actually, they told the spacecraft to turn itself off, and IBEX, which unlike the famous HAL in 2001 Odyssey, obeyed the command and then turned itself back on again. On February the 18th, IBEX experienced an anomaly, and the flight computer reset itself during a planned contact with Earth. But something didn't work right, and IBEX put itself into a contingency mode. NASA said that while flight computer resets have happened before, this time the team lost the ability to command the spacecraft during the subsequent reset recovery. The team also was unsuccessful in regaining command capability by resetting ground systems hardware and software. All other systems appeared to be functional, but no commands were being processed, essentially making the spacecraft non-operational. Of course, in space, there's a more official term for the turn-off, turn-on-again power cycle reboot that we've all done with a finicky computer. It's called a fire code reset, which is an external reset of the spacecraft. This was done on March the 2nd and done preemptively instead of waiting for the spacecraft to perform an autonomous reset and power cycle, which was scheduled for March 4th. Engineers decided to take advantage of a favorable communications environment around IBEX perigee, the point in the spacecraft orbit where it is closest to Earth. The command worked, and IBEX is functioning normal again. IBEX has been operating nearly flawlessly since its launch in October 2008. Its mission is to map the boundary where winds from the sun interact with winds from other stars. IBEX is an exceptionally small spacecraft, about the size of a bus tire, and does it work of observing the solar system boundary while in orbit around Earth. It has telescopes that look out towards the edge of the solar system, but these telescopes collect particles instead of light. From IBEX, we have the first all-sky map of the heliosphere, which revealed a surprise. The maps are bisected by a bright winding ribbon of unknown origin. Scientists are still working with IBEX data to understand this phenomenon. It sure seems like Amazon is making a new web browser.
A user survey hints at a new project that aligns with Amazon's lucrative push into advertising as a complement to Prime. Amazon is thinking about releasing a web browser, a boring-sounding project that could have massive implications. The company has sent a survey to users asking detailed questions, including which features would convince you to download and try a new desktop laptop browser from Amazon. They said, we want to understand what our customers value about current web browsers and what they wish the browser could do better. Amazon wrote in the survey, first spotted by Consumers Reports, by participating in this survey, you will contribute to innovations that improve browsing experiences for millions of people around the world. The survey asked a variety of questions. Most telling was the last question. Imagine that there is a new desktop laptop browser from Amazon. Select which of the following you would like to know more about. The survey went on to list topics such as privacy, syncing passwords across devices, and shopping features. Users were asked to rate the importance of features including text-to-speech, extensions, the availability to sync data across desktop and mobile devices, and notably, blocking third-party cookies. Amazon seems to be seriously considering a web browser of its own, and it comes at a time when it would have an unusual impact on the advertising business. The ad industry is bracing for major changes as Google moves closer to killing third-party cookies in Chrome, the world's most popular web browser, which would, of course, kneecap one of the primary ways business tracks consumers for ads. Most people don't think of Amazon as an ad company, but it's raking in astonishing marketing revenue. Amazon's ad business made almost $38 billion in 2022, which is more than it made on Prime and all of its other subscription services combined. Part of what makes Amazon so attractive to marketers is the fact that the company sits on a treasure trove of data about what consumers are buying and what their shopping habits are like. If Amazon could match that information with the data collection that comes from a web browser, it could tip the scales of internet advertising in favor of the retail giant. Amazon is, at the very least, doing its homework. The survey asked what users use their browsers for, how often they run into frustration with their tabs, and, of course, how many hours a day they spend using it. This isn't Amazon's first dip into the browser waters, though. Amazon did put out a web browser once, which it called Silk, first launched in 2011. Silk was meant for Amazon's own products. The company kept working on it, and Silk last made news when it came to the Echo Show in 2018. The survey suggests, however, that Amazon may release a browser for desktops for the first time. Earlier this week, Amazon announced availability of Amazon Linux 2023, its third-generation Linux distribution. With this distribution, Amazon is promising three benefits, a high security standard, a predictable life cycle, and deterministic updates. On the security front, Amazon says that its latest operating system comes with pre-configured security policies to help you set your system up to meet various common industry guidelines. 
The company says that these can be set during launch time or runtime. Amazon Linux 2023 also comes with a hardened Linux kernel by default for added security. With regards to the lifecycle, Amazon will release new versions of its operating system every two years. These bigger updates will bring big changes to the kernel. ToolChange, Glib, C, OpenSSL, and other system libraries and utilities. In addition to these, security updates will be made available when ready, and there will be quarterly updates that include security updates, bug fixes, and new features and packages. These quarterly updates will update stuff like language, runtimes, and popular software packages. Each version of Amazon Linux will be supported for five years, but after the initial two years and the release of the subsequent version, a release will be put into its maintenance phase, where it will just receive security bug fixes and patches when they're ready. This will be ideal for customers who don't want to upgrade their operating system all the time. Explaining deterministic updates, Amazon said that Amazon Linux provides you with deterministic updates through version repositories, a flexible and consistent update mechanism. The distribution locks to a specific version of the Amazon Linux package repository, giving you control over how and when you absorb updates. This helps ensure that you are using the same package versions across your other Linux systems with Amazon Linux installed. Amazon's new home internet service announces new details. Amazon announced new detail about its home internet service, including new details about its satellite receivers. This service will run off of satellites that Amazon is planning to launch into space starting later this year. Amazon hopes this service will bring internet options to many who currently have none or very few. Every technology and business decisions we've had has centered on what will deliver the best experience for different customers around the world, and our range of customer terminals reflect those choices, said Amazon Vice President of Technology for Project Kuiper. Part of the news today is that Amazon has released images of its new satellite receivers that are expected to cost Amazon less than $400 to produce. These receivers will be 11-inch square and about one inch thick, and allow up to 400 megabits per second. There will also be an ultra-portable version of Amazon's receiver that will be seven inch square and weigh about one pound with speeds up to 100 megabits per second. Lastly, there will be a pro version of this receiver at about 11 inches by 30 inches and will offer up to one gigabits per second. Amazon expects to begin mass production of commercial satellites by the end of the year and begin seriously launching satellites in 2024. According to its CEO, Amazon plans to bring home internet to 300 to 400 million customers worldwide. Project Kuiper will serve customers with minimal to no fixed broadband connectivity, changing access to information and resources for many communities. Analysts estimate approximately 300 to 400 million customers globally are in this category. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy wrote to shareholders last year, 
Amazon is hoping if more customers have high-speed internet, they will be more likely to use Amazon products. More customers online means more video stream, more Amazon orders, and more music to listen to. And of course, all of these things are things Amazon can make money from. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy announces an additional 9,000 layoffs. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy announced another round of layoffs at the massive tech corporation, this time resulting in 9,000 Amazon employees losing their jobs. According to the memo, the affected departments include Amazon Web Services, Human Resources, Advertising, and Twitch live streaming. The move comes after Amazon announced it was axing a total of 18,000 positions earlier this year. Amazon went on a pandemic-fueled hiring spree after COVID-19 lockdowns that saw the tech industry as a whole boom as people used their computers more than ever. Now, that bubble is bursting. Google overhired to do fake work to stop them working for rivals, as claimed by former PayPal boss Keith Rayboy. The thousands of layoffs in big tech are thanks to an overhiring spree to satisfy the vanity of bosses at the likes of Meta and Alphabet, according to Rayboy. Speaking remotely at an event hosted by banking firm Evercore, Silicon Valley Keith Rayboy is a venture capitalist said, Meta and Google had overhired thousands of people to do fake work to hit hiring metrics out of vanity. Ray Boy, who was an executive at PayPal in the early 2000s, alongside Tesla CEO Elon Musk, said the axing of droves of jobs is overdue. All these people were extraneous. This has been true for a long time. The vanity metric of hiring employees was this force God in some ways. There's nothing for these people to do. It's all fake work. Now that's being exposed. What do these people actually do? They go to meetings. Google had intentionally hired engineers and tech talent to stop them from being snapped up by competitors. The downside was that the new hires just had to be entitled, sit at their desk and do nothing. The current Announced job cuts across the tech sector have been painful for employees. Google owner Alphabet cut 12,000 jobs in January, with CEO Sundar Pinchai saying he took full responsibility for job losses. Meta laid off 11,000 in 2022. Ray Boy praises old friend Elon Musk in his on-screen appearance at the Miami event, saying that the SpaceX founder's axing of half the Twitter staff since his takeover in October should provide inspiration to other tech bosses. People are watching Elon and Twitter, and he's clearly setting an example. Maybe it's an extreme example, Ray Boy said, before swiftly adding he would never bet against the Tesla mogul. Musk has always been a critic of apparent paper pushers. Silicon Valley veteran Mark Adresen has previously claimed many tech firms are overstaffed, while taking to social media to criticize those in the laptop class, which he describes as Western upper-middle-class professionals who work through a screen 
and are totally abstracted from tangible physical reality and the real-world consequences of their opinions and beliefs. Musk responded to the tweet, adding the laptop class are disconnected from what it takes to make stuff. Rayboy added that shifting away from a focus on growth and instead looking at profitability metrics, that's revenue per employee, will be the next frontier for tech giants. He adds that cutting employee headcount is the easiest way to preserve and generate cash flow. However, while shifting focus has been suitable for those at the top of the tree, for the 150,000 people who lost their jobs in 2022 and the additional tens of thousands who have been let go this year, it's been devastating. Silicon Valley founders and investors today are debating what constitutes real work in tech. That's amid the biggest shedding of jobs in the industry history. That's the question posed by certain members of Silicon Valley founders who are attributing layoffs to a boom time phenomenon that's overhiring and fake work. A tirade on fake work came last week from Keith Rayboy, the PayPal technology investor and the current chief executive of e-commerce firm Open Door. There's nothing for these people to do. They're really, it's all fake work, said Ray Boy, whose net worth was at one time estimated at $1 billion. Now that's being exposed. What do these people actually do? They go to meetings. The view has gained hold among rich investors and founders. They really were doing nothing working from home. Thomas Siebel, the billionaire chief executive of artificial intelligence firm C3.ai, said, if you want to work from home, like four days of work in your pajamas, go to work for Facebook. And they see mass layoff as a chance to reset tech exceptionalism and return to the grind. Ray Boy says fake work is meetings. For Elon Musk, it's not being in the office or not making stuff. For investor Mark Adresen, it's whatever the laptop class does, including seemingly holding socially conformist opinions. Tech firms in the past were so desperate to stop staff from going to competitors that the perks became legendarily ridiculous. Investor David Sachs, a friend of Musk, commented, does anyone still work? There's also the phenomenon of rest and vest employees, rich workers acquired into a larger organization who do, well, nothing while waiting for their shares to vest so they can leave. Musk has been the most outspoken CEO when it comes to chopping workers. He sees as surplus, demanding early in his Twitter takeover that workers commit to being extremely hardcore and prioritizing engineers over workers in areas like policy, marketing, and legal. He and others pushing a grind culture are motivated, as tech employees commented on the workplace app line noted. Probably some greedy VC looking to suppress rages, said one user who tag indicated they currently work at Square. I work at severally supposedly good work-life balance companies, and everyone had tons of work to do. It's and fake work just isn't possible at most startups, one investor said. It is easy to get lost in a large company, but for a startup, there's no way to get away with fake work. But while they aren't openly agreeing with Musk, Andreessen, Rayboy, and Sachs, it's clear other tech CEOs are following Musk's example.
Meta, which laid off more than 11,000 employees in November, saw roughly 70% of its layoff hit departments such as recruiting, product, marketing, operations, design, and sales. According to MetaMate's talent directory, a tally created by Meta employees to keep track of cut jobs. Only around 20% of layoffs came from the, the engineering team. Mark Zuckerberg message to the staff. Welcome to the real world. It's all a distant memory now, says Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Meta Platforms. Welcome to the real world, he proclaimed this past week. He announced the elimination of 10,000 additional jobs after 11,000 jobs were cut last November. In all, the parent of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp has cut 21,000 jobs in four months. It's not just the cuts themselves that's striking here. It's the tone with which Zuckerberg announced a new wave of austerity measures. He adopted the vernacular of the boss of an old economy company. He was a course killer. He was cold. It isn't personal. It's just business. He was a normal boss. In our year of efficiency, he said, we are focused on canceling projects that are duplicative or lower priority and making every organization as lean as possible, Zuckerberg wrote in a blog post. He continued, as part of the year of efficiency, we're focusing on returning to a more optimal ratio of engineers to other roles. It's important for all groups to get leaner and more efficient to enable our technology groups to get as lean and efficient as possible. He used the word efficiency fully a number of times, including or a catch-all of classic corporate lingo that says everything and nothing. Improve our financial performance. Difficult environment. Execute. Optimize. Work streams. Processes. Changes. Uncertainty and focus. He sounds like the CEO of a traditional company. His post is a manual, a guide that other tech CEOs will use as well. The tone is cold, and it changed in November when Zuckerberg announced elimination of 11,000 jobs. He played the sensitive chord. He apologized. I want to take accountability for these decisions and for how we got here, the CEO said at the time. I know this is a tough time for everyone, and I'm especially sorry to those impacted. This time, there is none of that. He is not sentimental, as if to put a war between him and those for whom the music just stopped and who were asked to go home while the evening was in full swing, he just killed the fun. This is a new normal. Tech and Silicon Valley now enters the normal corporate world. In this world, what matters is to please the markets, and the markets like cost cuts. The employee is secondary. If you make big profits with the least possible cost, the markets applaud. Interestingly, Zuckerberg's announcement come at the same time as the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, a major player in the startup ecosystem and in Silicon Valley. These two events cannot be separated. Their symbolism is strong. It is the end of an era and the beginning of a new one, or rather the meeting of an old economy and a new one. In case anyone still has any doubts, Zuckerberg also appears to be ending remote work at Meta. 
Tech companies previously backed off from forcing employees back to the office. Our early analysis of performance data suggests that engineers who either join Meta in person and then transfer to remote or remain in person perform better on average than people who join remotely, he said. This analysis also shows that engineers earlier in their career perform better on average when they work in person with teammates at least three days a week. I encourage all of you to find more opportunities to work with your colleagues in person. The party is over. It's time to grow up, Zuckerberg seems to be saying. One last tip to reflect on. While you're on your way home, I encourage each of you to focus on what you can control. That is, do great work and support your teammates. So the message to the staff was, welcome to a normal boss and a normal company. Amazon Kills DP Review, the best camera review site on the web. Back in the days of film photography, I looked forward to the monthly issues of popular photography and modern photography. The lab tests were detailed and thorough. Film cameras have since gave way to digital cameras at the turn of the century. In place of popular photography and modern photography magazines, I was a regular reader of DP Review. After 25 years of extremely detailed reviews of digital cameras and accessories, the irreplaceable DP review is being shut down by Amazon as the company proceeds with a new round of layoffs. The site will remain active until April 10th, and the editorial staff is still working on reviews. DP review was founded in 1998 in England and bought by Amazon in 2007, which in 2010 relocated the team to Seattle to be closer to its headquarters. The team's knowledge, acumen, and extensive objective testing contributed to reviews that were meticulously thorough. Its backlog of camera reviews and specs is an incredible resource that I have referenced often. This consistency and dedication drew and retained a large and dedicated community, one which produced comment threads thousands strong on reviews and news items as they quibble good-naturedly with each other and the staff over sharpness and equivalency and the merits of the product review. Cameras today have risen and fallen in favor as they have vied with smartphones for imaging dominance and in terms of popularity. But while far fewer people are buying standalone digital cameras in 2023 than they were in 2013, or for that matter, 2003, The enthusiast and professional market remains strong, and cameras themselves have gotten incredibly good. Somehow, Amazon never really found a way to capitalize or monetize this one-of-a-kind communication media, and DP Review has carried on over the years more or less untouched, to the point where it seems possible its parent company forgot they owned them. It's hard not to see the opportunities that present themselves when you own one of the world's leading expert voices on a major category. But perhaps unsurprisingly, no one thought to invest in and integrate DP Review closely with Amazon's other properties. It isn't the first time the left hand and the right hand haven't been shaking hands with each other at the company. The team was laid off in its entirety as part of the latest round of cuts at Amazon, which, like other companies, has been tightening its belt or perhaps also like other companies, 
using the excuse of macroeconomic headwinds to perform reductions that at any other time would seem needless. DP Review is hardly the first media property to get the axe during these turbulent times, but it is surely one of the oldest and most unique. Here's hoping the talented and knowledgeable team is picked up by another company and Amazon comes to regret its decision. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I spend just a few minutes talking about the business, the workplace, IT there, and how it impacts us, how it relates to us. And yes, we go all over the place with this particular topic, but I want you to think about this age-old saying, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And when we talk about data, when we talk about all of the information on our computers, it is important that we don't put all of our data into one place, that one single hard drive. So businesses have gone through and they've done a number of different efforts to make sure that they don't lose too much data or any data. If they can at all avoid it, if they can at all help it, yes, we do have issues like ransomware. And ransomware it gets better and better and better. And it attacks it attacks not only the local drives, but then the network drives. And then it expands on out beyond that. So they, they put it into a place where they start looking for data backups. And they start putting the ransomware on the data backups, securing all of the data down that they can to hold the everything ransom. Relying on a single backup will leave your data, whether it's the company, your personal data, whatever it is, vulnerable in case of failure. And that failure can be a failure to protect against viruses and ransomware and all of that. It can be physical hard drive failure. It can be, oops, I deleted the wrong thing. To protect your data, whether we're talking business or personal, multiple backups are essential. Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about businesses, but I want you to think about how this all interrelates to both sides of this. So multiple data backups are crucial. They protect against data loss. If, if, if the backup fails, you lose all of your data. If you have one backup, that's a problem. If you have multiple backups, okay, one backup can fail. Two backups can fail. Your original can fail. But if you've got a third backup, you're covered. Then there's something called business continuity. And this is a business side thing. But we also need to think about our own personal life con continuity. Imagine you've got a system crash, your primary backup fails, and you can't access your data. What happens? You're, if in the business, the business operations come to a halt. In the home, your email comes to a halt. All of the different things you rely on start to crash. You lose all of, all of your taxes for the last 10 years. Some would argue that's not a big deal. But, you know, others would say, yeah, I don't want an IRS audit. So you need to be able to quickly restore whatever data it is that is lost 
You need to restore your systems and get back to where you were before all of that went south. Now, in the business world, there are compliance requirements. There's something called Sarbanes-Oxley, which requires all businesses to retain financial data for a specific period of time. The way we do that in the business world is we have multiple backups just so we can meet those requirements. In our personal lives, we go back to that IRS thing, but don't you want to have all of the backups of the data in regards to the purchase of your home or your car or your your bank accounts, your, uh, your, your 401k, your, all of these different things? You need to have access to it. Of course, we talk about human error. I will tell you, I, 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 have, I have been there on the scene when we had a network guy make a really stupid mistake. And he almost, well, he killed all of the data on a very key computer. He, uh, you know, he, he wound up paying the price for it. We all did because we were scrambling to get that data back. So we had to restore that data. And having multiple backups reduces the risk of losing data due to something like this. And as I mentioned, the ransomware attacks. So let's, let's really think about this. How many backups do you need? Now, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this. There's, there's all kinds of different directions we can go in. How many do I believe that I need? Well, I carry the original data. I have a backup drive in the system that sits right there, and it's constant. I do regular updates there. I have two external drives, which I rotate through, and then I have a network drive. This is all within my home. I have one more external drive offsite, and when I say offsite, it's a long way away just to protect my data. Now, I also test these backups on a regular basis to make sure they're working correctly and that I've covered all of the important information that I need to retain in case everything goes bad. The last thing you want to have happen is for you to go to your backup and you find out, oh, that didn't work. I've had that happen to me personally before. Look, your best bet, at least three copies of your data, one offsite, two locally. I've got a few more. Weigh it out. I will tell you the cost to recover data. Should you encounter a failure, one of these problems can be expensive, far more expensive than these cheap external hard drives. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The difference today between cord cutting and cable, almost nothing. Cutting the cord, a quaint expression meant to signify consumers severing their ties that bind them to onerous cable bills, arose in the 2010s. The dream of streaming struck a nerve in millions of people around the world, stuck renting a proprietary cable box, and arbitrarily losing channels in corporate spats that dragged on for months while conveniently locked into contracts. Streaming promised the delivery of the same level of quality, if not more so, of cable at a substantially lower rate, 
without the BS of haggling. The year 2007 was important because it marked the debut of both Hulu and Netflix streaming services, the beginning of a revolution in customer choice that freed us from having to pay for channels we did not want. You know, the kind, the channels that ran nothing but Wings, rerun 24 hours a day, or the same sports highlights over and over every hour in bars and hotel lobbies with the sound turned off, serving as visual ambiance. If you're under 30, you might not even know about the existence of TBS or ESPN News, but they were once ubiquitous in all parts of America, despite offering little in terms of value, and in some cases actually ruining the few great shows they did show. We're back there, only now with streaming services. The days of being gouged $60 a month for one cable provider are gone, replaced with having to shell out $10 a month for six replacements. Cutting the cord used to be a cost saver, but the once savvy maneuver took a hit when YouTube TV, YouTube's live TV service that offers access to over 100 linear television channels, set its first major price increase since 2020. The $65 service will now cost $73 per month, an $8 or 12% increase. New subscribers will see the higher price effective immediately. Monthly bills for existing members will rise on April the 18th. YouTube TV price increase means you may not save much, but there's nothing to lose but a set-top box and the threat of having to talk to cable customer service. YouTube TV said via an email to its current users, As content costs have risen, and we continue to invest in the quality of our service, we are updating our price to keep bringing you the best possible service. We hope YouTube TV continues to be your service of choice, but we also understand that some members would want to cancel their service. It's a significant hike, but it reflects a market in which users are increasingly comfortable using an online app for local and live TV and with that, the ability to subscribe and cancel without having to run the gauntlet of cable customer service. YouTube TV and other apps of its kind like Hulu, Live TV, or Sling occupy a unique place in the TV landscape. They're effectively streaming services that mirror traditional cable bundles. It's cutting the cord for people who want to lose their cable provider and set-top box, but not the channel's DirecTV Stream and Spectrum are among the streaming services that also may require a proprietary device, which may come with a separate charge. How similar is the user experience compared to cable TV? The Nielsen Rating Service said it will no longer consider virtual multi-channel video programming distributors separate from linear television in its monthly newsletter, The Gauge, which tracks how consumers watch television. Prior to that, the gauge lumped in multi-channel video programming distributors with streaming. The most recent reports in January had YouTube TV accounting for 14.9% of all YouTube viewing. Hulu Live made up 9.1% of all Hulu viewing. YouTube TV has a $11 sports add-on and a $15 Spanish language add-on, an array of premium add-ons like HBO, Stars, or Showtime. It's not hard to cross $100 per month. Hulu Live TV, which currently has about 4.4 million users, 
costs $70 or $76 if you want to remove ads from on-demand content. There are also a multitude of bundling options for Disney's other streamers, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Add two separate $10 bundles for various sports and the ability to watch on unlimited screens, a $5 Spanish programming bundle, an $8 bundle for various assorted networks like the Cooking Channel and MTV Classic, and several premium add-ons like Showtime and HBO, you could show out between $147 and $154 a month. In other words, it starts to look like a cable bill. A report from U.S. News last year showed that most people pay around $200 a month for the cable bill. Easily half of that is for internet access required for streaming. To cushion the blow for the price hike, YouTube TV simultaneously announced that the 4K Plus video resolution add-on will drop its price from $20 a month to $10. New users of the option can receive a special $5 per month rate for the next year. A user who previously subscribed to the add-on will pay slightly less, $83 or $2 less than their prior monthly fee. While YouTube TV is most certainly not throwing in its shiniest new add-on, NFL Sunday Ticket, the package which broadcasts all out-of-market NFL games spent years as an exclusive to DirecTV. Google struck a deal to bring the package to YouTube TV for the coming football season. On DirecTV, Sunday Ticket costs $294 per season for the basic package or $396 with bonus features. YouTube TV is expected to price it somewhere around $300. Even without the Sunday ticket, YouTube TV was already a hot ticket. In July 2022, the company said 5 million people either paid for or were testing out YouTube TV, up from 2 million subscribers in mid-2020. The unified umbrella of cable TV that previously existed was supplanted by a patchwork a la carte business model. While this sounds like a reasonable deal on paper, what it actually means in practice is forcing consumers to make the same exact trade-off they made before. Consumers are now forced to pay more for the right to watch one or two series stuck with a lot of other junk that you have no interest in viewing can live without. The streamers didn't solve a problem. The viewing landscape has not been improved but rather fragmented. That's not even factoring in premium pricing models, which mirror cable. Are we really better off? The gravy train has started going off the third rail as the streamers are packaging unwanted channels to boot the streaming service rate. This is cable TV subscription déjà vu. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, you were talking, to, you were talking about the line of succession, and I don't think, I don't think you were talking about the royals. I don't think you were talking about <laughs> uh, Prince Harry and his. No, his I'm, I'm, I'm thinking silicon. Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I look. I work very hard not to live in the past on this show. Yes. We, we, we get some references that are older than I like them to be, but yeah, 
we all grew up, you know, we had dads with computers, all of that. So, so that, I mean, that, and that's really Steve's realm. That's, that's where we, we frequently go to him for that, but yeah. And, and there was an era and you know it well when gaming mm-hmm. and for that matter, video editing mm-hmm. really required getting extra horsepower into the box and extra storage and all of that kind of thing and kind of forced us away from notebooks, which were already trending mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and into the system unit, that computer case that would live the desktop. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly right. Now, if you think about what went into those all the wonderful graphics cards, all of the drives yeah, yeah. Uh, and the peripherals, the big screens, uh, the, the, the keyboards with extra functionality, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is all of it invalid now? Is all of it obsolete? Go back any further. And yes, it is. I'm betting no matter how many printers you have with Centronics ports, you're not going to plug one into anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I I no longer have any printers with Centronic Sports. Right, but, but that's that's only for that's only for about three years now. For, uh, yeah. five years actually. And USB, yeah. if it's older than if, if even USB two is obsolete in a lot of people's minds, and rightfully sure. yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So you know, there, there's this natural migration, progression, evolution within computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on my mind is. Are we abandoning value? And I don't mean to us, and I don't mean we should be hoarding. Mm-hmm. But when we're done with those computers for ourselves, when we've moved on, mm-hmm. is there some value to the whole thing or the pieces and parts? Is there somebody who might be less fortunate who would enjoy having the ability to use a computer be, but haven't been able to afford one, even a basic one? Mm-hmm. Are there schools where they, they could find good purpose for them? Are there charities? Is there a, a goodwill store kind of venue for these things? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that that's organized. In fact, listeners, if you know things around you, drop us a note. Let us know what, what's going on out there because I've got tons of stuff. I keep trying to donate or give away, and 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 there are only so many trips I can make in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me let me toss some that I have dealt with in the past. Sure, absolutely. Um, we think of schools, uh, and we think okay, uh, George Washington Elementary, right around the corner, or whatever it is. You know, it's always yeah. named after a president or some famous person, and uh, uh, but. Uh, one of the things to look for is the private schools. Those private schools typically are in more dire need of the tech. Uh, it's it's something that some of them some of them are, are very tech savvy, but a number of them aren't, and and that's that's really sad. Um, uh, you know, maybe this belongs as a community activity all over the country. Sure. Yes. Yes. And I, I, uh, uh, I, w- I would definitely suggest that we start looking for places uh, outside of Goodwill. Goodwill. Uh, what Goodwill is doing is, if they see value in it, um, they put a it, price tag on a low price tag, and they try to make it available. Yeah. Well, if it, well, actually, one of the things that I, I stumbled across recently. Goodwill is actually reselling the high-end stuff on places like eBay and and maximizing their money that way. That's uh, nice. And that, that because we know that the funds they get go to good purpose. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, so we, we've got to find places like that. Um, th and there's so many things, you know, headphones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, earbuds, even ones that have only been used once or twice. Docs. Yeah. You know, yes. Not all yes. system you know, there, yeah. there, there are lots of notebooks out there. Webcams. Uh, mm -hmm. Just tons and tons of things that could be useful to somebody, I'm sure. Yeah. And there are people who would love to have it, but don't know how to ask where to get it or any of that. We need a little bit of matchmaking out there. Not that we should have a computer program to do that, but it would be nice to <laughs> <laughs> have a little matchmaking out there. You know, and I am thinking of, uh, so uh, so the, uh, the church that I go to, we do have an uh, assistance that we do for people who are relocating. But... Um, but I don't think we've got any kind of computer outfit kind of anything that's going on with that. And I know that there are people that are underprivileged yeah. that, that could utilize this. So, yeah, I've got to think about that. I've got to ask them about that. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned older stuff that's still viable. Stuff that's not nearly as old is even more viable. And notebooks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and how many times did you get the uh, the tablet for free by adding one more line on your mobile plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that all of that tech can can really go to uh, really go to good usage in various places. And we need to all think about that. And that's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. This coming Saturday, the Trenton Computer Festival, the 47th Annual Original Personal Computer Festival, Saturday, March the 18th, 2023. It will be featuring an EV car show with ride and share between the hours of 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., of course, weather permitting. And the theme of the festival this year is electric vehicles and related technologies. 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., TCF 2023 live festival event at the College of New Jersey with online 11 tracks of virtual talks via Zoom, free streaming through tcf-nj.org. The talks start at 10.15 a.m. There will be vendors there at the College of New Jersey from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. For more detailed information, tcf-nj.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a meeting Thursday, March the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, had originally scheduled a meeting for Thursday, April the 6th, 2023, and the meeting for April has been canceled. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, Friday, has a meeting April the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting on Thursday, April the 13th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, April the 14th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Bite Computer Club has a meeting on Tuesday, April the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, you can call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.